Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The Gospel according to St. John, the 13th chapter and the first verse. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, our Lord told his apostles in Luke twenty-two fifteen. And truly there had never been a supper quite like this supper up to that point. The Last Supper, we call it. Although you could also call it the First Supper. Others don't bother with the timing and simply call it the Mystical Supper. Regardless of what you call it, it was and is the Lord's Passover. In that guest room, can you see it? The Lord Jesus surrounded himself with the twelve. The twelve that would not abandon him. Even as you'll remember after the hard saying of John chapter 6, where he had said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Even when so many of his disciples afterwards turned back and no longer walked with him, they remained. Lord, to whom shall we go? Peter said for the twelve, You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Did I not choose you the twelve, Jesus said, and yet one of you is a devil. Having loved his own in the world, he loved them to the end. Well, we call this day Maundy Thursday, which always confused me when I first started coming to services as an Anglican. I thought, Monday, Thursday? These people don't know what day of the week it is. I don't, I don't know. But as the preface to the service explains in the prayer book, by the way, there are excellent prefaces for each of the services in Holy Week in that prayer book that I recommend to you. But in the preface before Monday, Thursday, we were reminded that the Monday comes from mandatum, the Latin for command, because tonight is the night the Lord gave us a new command. As we read in verse 34 of John 13, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Of course, when I figured out that's what Maundy Thursday meant, I didn't feel much better because I thought, wait, so this is Commandy Thursday? It's like, that's not really much better. It's a day to be commanded. I can't keep up with the old commandments. What am I going to do with a new commandment? Well, in that upper room, during that intimate, otherworldly supper, where, like the elders in Exodus 24, they beheld God and ate and drank, There Jesus gave them his life for their bread, that out of his life they might live. The Son of God freely poured out his love as their wine, that out of that cup they might love, such that we don't only have a new commandment tonight, 
but we have a commandment because we're new in him. We don't only have a new commandment, but we have a commandment because we're new in him. Now, as you may have noticed, while the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, often called the Synoptic Gospels, they rehearse the giving of the bread and wine in the upper room, what we would call the words of institution. St. John, the theologian, in his Gospel, as we heard tonight, he once again uh, gives us an opportunity for a different perspective. St. John likely wrote many decades after the other Gospels, And so he is giving his own take on things. And instead of focusing on the bread and wine, John recalls something else that happened during the meal. Now, he's not called the theologian for no reason, so we would do well to pay attention. We read in verse 2 of chapter 13, During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. In Psalm 23, the Lord said through David, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Jesus knew that Judas, one of the twelve, one of the apostles, was going to betray the Son of Man into the hands of sinners. For the bargain of 30 pieces of silver, which comes out likely to be about a month's wages. No one can serve two masters, let me remind you. You cannot serve God and money. And Judas, who regularly pilfered from the money bag, chose his master with those 30 coins. One commentator I read pointed out how in Exodus 21.32 we read that 30 shekels of silver is the restitution price for a slave who has been accidentally killed. So the life of God's Son is valued with the lowest of the low, reminding us once more of the words of Isaiah in Isaiah 53, He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The son was bought with the price of a slave so that we, the true slaves, slaves to sin and death, might be given the right to become children of God. And so although a devil has come to sup with God, God washes that devil's feet. St. John Chrysostom, in fact, speculates that Judas might have been the first to have his feet washed, given that Peter seems to speak for the other eleven Regardless, we are told that Christ rises from supper. You'll notice he lays aside his outer garments. He ties a towel around his waist. And he begins to wash and dry the disciples' feet. Some of the fathers even note that Christ poured the water into the basin himself. He didn't get anyone else to do that. He himself took off his garments. He finds and ties the towel. He does not outsource one moment of his transformation into a servant to anyone else. He does it all himself. He whom Paul described in 1 Timothy 6 as the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, 
who dwells in unapproachable light. That one rolled up his sleeves and stooped to attend to our filthiness. John's description of Christ's movements here have a holy rhythm to them that seems to resonate or echo with Philippians 2, where we read that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Here at the foot washing, the whole cosmic drama of Christ's mission is enacted before the disciples by the laying aside of garments and assuming a servant's posture. And when it's finished, look down in verse 12, he puts his garments back on and he resumes his place. Here we see his incarnation, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. But in the midst of this beautiful symbolic act, our dear friend and brother Peter has a complaint. Lord, you wash my feet? Now, while Peter doesn't understand everything yet, I would remind us, he has confessed at this point Jesus to be the Christ, which is the anointed one, is the king, is David's son. Not just another prophet, but the one all the prophets had been talking about. Peter has been on the Mount of Transfiguration. He's seen the uncreated light pouring from the person of Jesus Christ. Peter has seen lepers cleansed and the dead raised by the hands of Jesus. And now those same hands will cup his dirty feet and wash them clean? Even Peter's limited understanding of who Christ is tells him that this is beyond inappropriate. An honorable man would not allow this to go on. Disciples sit at their rabbi's feet, not the other way around. How can Peter allow the son of David to abase himself in this way? Beloved, many of you here tonight are uncomfortable at the thought of God serving you. You find it hard to believe that, yes, God cares about you, much less that he loves you. I say to those of you who feel incapable of receiving or believing in God's love, consider the hands of Christ washing the disciples' feet. You may have this idea of God. It may have developed at some point because of something that happened in the past. You may have developed this idea that God is somehow cruel or he's distant or absent altogether. I encourage you to challenge those phantoms that you've confused with God. Challenge them with the reality of Jesus Christ that's been revealed to us. He is the revelation of God and nothing else. No lie that the devil plants in your mind. Jesus Christ is God. If you want to see who God is, look at Jesus. This Jesus chose not to be above scrubbing between your toes. He made it his business to make you clean. Now, at first, Peter puts his foot down, pun very much intended, and says, you shall never wash my feet. But Jesus makes it clear that this is necessary for Peter's ongoing relationship with Christ 
To which our dear brother St. Peter responds in characteristic Petrine fashion by demanding a full immersion. Lord, not just my feet, my hands, and my head. Now I think this bit might be helpful for, for those of you who might think that dirty feet require another baptism. That the need to come be made clean again somehow means you were never clean in the first place. But that would be to ignore 1 John 1.8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Being a Christian in this world means constant friction with our sinful flesh. I can testify, all right? But when we rub up against that flesh and we struggle with it, it's no surprise to God. He's ready. He's prepared for this. Believe it or not, he knows what he's doing. You are not cast out. You're still clean. You just need your feet to be washed. And he is always ready to wash your feet. He's really amazing. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In a moment, some of us are going to kneel beside basins of water We're going to wash your feet. This is an important moment in the life of the church. It's important that we wash one another's feet in imitation of Christ. But for those of you here who, perhaps like Peter, have difficulty conceiving or receiving the love of God, I encourage you, come, be uncomfortable, have your feet washed, and behold Christ washing your feet. And remember that he is gentle and lowly in heart. That's what he told us. And that he loves you. Because before you try to take up the commandment of Commandy Thursday, you must see that Jesus is giving you his life for your bread. That it's out of his life that you live. Before you take up the commandment, you try to wrestle with it and and do the commandment, you must see that the Son of God is freely poured out, pouring out His love as your wine. It's only out of that cup that you can love, such that we don't only have a new commandment, but we have a commandment because we're new. X number of years ago, when I was a chubby 12-year-old in Demopolis, Alabama, I wanted to uh, play soccer with my friends, um, but I was, I was actually so out of shape, my parents thought I might have um, asthma. Um, I was sucking down air like my life depended on it. But our coach was J.R. Rivas. He, uh, came, he came from an immigrant family. He worked his, his butt off to build a business in this country. One day, coach told us to do some push-ups. Some of us couldn't get through those push-ups, let me tell you. We started grumbling and complaining. So you know what Coach JR did? That guy jumped on the ground. He did, I think, 20 push-ups himself. And he got up. I'll never forget, because this was the moment I began to respect him. He looked at us and said, I will never ask you to do something I wouldn't do myself. Now, as wonderful of an example Coach gave us, It's actually not a perfect analogy for what Christ did. 
Because while, as he told us, he certainly did give us an example that we should do as he's done, there is an important difference I would like to draw your attention to. And that the example he gives is not separate from the offering of himself so that you can do it. Remember, the foot washing happens during the same meal where in the other three Gospels, Christ takes bread, he gives thanks, he breaks it, he gives it to the twelve saying, this is my body. And the same with the cup. The cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. It is out of his life that we live. We don't grab bootstraps and do this ourselves. It's out of his love that we love. For apart from him, we can do nothing. And yet, because we are new in him, we are given a new commandment. You need new wine for new wineskins. And what makes the commandment new? Not the command to love. God's people have always been told to love. What is new about this commandment is Him. We are told to love just as He loved us. The commandment is new because we are new in Him. He is doing something new. He gives Himself to us as bread. It's out of His life that we live. He pours Himself out for us as wine. It's out of that cup. That we love. This is why in our epistle reading in 1 Corinthians 11, St. Paul can tell the Corinthians, it's actually just before our reading, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Now, why was it not the Lord's Supper? Because separation from the love of Christ brought separation into the body. In the early church, it seems that the Eucharist was situated within a larger meal to which everyone contributed, perhaps not unlike a potluck. I'm a former Baptist that appeals to my formerly Baptist heart. Though because of complications like the ones Paul is addressing here, the Eucharist was soon celebrated on its own, like we do here, apart from the meal. Well, in Corinth, wealthier members were bringing these lavish contributions Very good wine, I'm sure, that they then enjoyed themselves. Now this utterly shamed poorer members of the community who could not match their offerings. Well, Paul called the church in Corinth to remember what the Eucharist was actually all about. It is our Passover when we remember and participate in the sacrifice of Christ, our Passover lamb. Christ's perfect offering of himself. This is what constitutes the church anew as the body of Christ. It unites us to him, but it also unites us to one another. Which is why Paul was so outraged to find these class divisions intruding into the Lord's Supper itself. It's like if someone was putting on a cast to to heal a broken bone and you just dropped firecrackers in it. That, That was the kind of disparity Paul was looking at. Paul wrote earlier in 1 Corinthians 10, 17, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. How could God's people shamelessly isolate one another as they participated in the reality that united them? This is even echoed in the first Passover in Exodus 12, 4, where neighbors were commanded to include those households that couldn't afford their own lamb. It's all of a piece. Now, of course, the body and blood has deep personal significance for each one of us. 
but it's also meant to be the means by which we are united to one another in Christ and to bring us into the life of the one who is not above washing our feet and making us clean. So yes, today we remember Christ's example, but his example is not separated from the offering of himself in which Jesus gives his life for our bread that out of his life we might live. The Son of God freely pours out his love as our wine that out of his cup we might love, such that we don't only have a new commandment, but we have a commandment because we're new in him. As I close, I can't help recalling how, although Christ stooped at his disciples' feet here in the first century A.D., when you look to Revelation 5, there are 24 elders, so the patriarchs and the apostles, Old and New Testament, and now they are the ones falling down before the Lord. They're giving him the crowns that they won through their imitation of the Savior. Truly, God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Just as we pray before we receive the blessed sacrament, grant us therefore, gracious Lord, so to eat the flesh of your dear Son, Jesus Christ, and to drink his blood, that our sinful bodies may be made clean by his body, and our souls washed through his most precious blood, that we may evermore dwell in him, and he in us. Amen.